right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Inside Writing. This show is presented by Gotham Writers Workshop, offering writing classes of all types and sizes. You can visit us at GothamWriters.com. Uh, a quick announcement, a reminder that if you've missed any episode of Inside Writing, you can find the recorded versions on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. The same for this show. It'll be available later today on all those platforms. Speaking of which, if you do enjoy the show, consider giving it a good review on whatever podcast platform you you prefer or subscribing on YouTube. The more reviewers and followers we get, the more people it'll reach. So you're doing everyone a favor. Moving into the show for today, uh, at any point, you can submit your questions for the Q&A portion. There's that Q&A button on your Zoom dashboard. The sooner you get those questions in, the better. Uh, as soon as I see questions starting to pile up, I'll cut to audience questions. So if you get them in quickly, we'll have more time to do Q&A. So keep that in mind. On to the subject of the day. We're going to be talking about satire and parody. And our quote for the day comes from Carl Hyacin, who said, good satire comes from anger. It comes from a sense of injustice, that there are wrongs in the world that need to be fixed. We're going to talk more about that later. But for now, let's meet our panelists. Uh, first off, a writer with work appearing in Reductress, The Onion, The Belladonna, Points in Case, and more, Meredith Dietz. Hello, Meredith. Hey, Josh. Happy to be here. Yeah, thank you for being here. And our second, par uh, second panelist, editor-in-chief and co-founder of The Hard Times, Bill Conway. Hello, Bill. Hello, hello. So our first question, we're going to start with definitions. And since we have two subjects of the day, it makes it easy. So Meredith, I want to start with you. What does satire mean to you? I'm getting flashbacks to my undergraduate senior thesis, <laughs> um, <laughs> which was just an excuse for me to watch a bunch of John Oliver. But no, I like the quote you use because my understanding of satire has always been, you know, using humor and irony to... Um, hold truth to power and to punch up and um, expose something that we already need know to be true and to put it to its most like exaggerated sense. Mm -hmm. Bill, how does that differ from parody or does it? Uh, I think parody is different in the sense where parody is very referential, like that Weird Al song you just played. There's nothing being sent up there. You recognize the song. You, you know the references to Star Wars and you're, depending on your, your thoughts about Weird Al or that the, the subject matter, you might laugh or you might not, but you're certainly not listening to Weird Al and being like, man, the government sucks. You know, I can't believe this. Uh, so that, I think that's the biggest difference is parody. It, it plays on references and the commonality in, in that respect. Mm -hmm. You both touched on this. Meredith, in order to write satire, you have to have something that you're satirizing, right? So where do you go to look for these ideas to fuel a satire piece? Well, contrary to what Bill said, usually I'm jamming to Weird Al and letting like the rage <laughs> just pump in my veins. Um, no, that may, I was saying that. Um, I think it's interesting to say, where do you go? Because I would say I've always described my writing process to the countless fans that ask, um, uh, like, as in, like, I'm kind of always capturing, like, you just have to be always reading the news and always um, observing and capturing um, things that are going around that you think, like, have potential, like, potential concepts and premises. And then the act of writing is just sorting out all those nonsense notes in your notes app. Mm -hmm. But um, I would, when I say where do you go, I think, like, 
for me, it's like just always being on, always being looking for stuff. Because if I like open a blank page and have just like CNN in the next tab, I might be able to get like structure for jokes, but I don't think I'm going to get the emotion or like the like point, like the purpose of like truth um, and just like that kind of strict setting. And there's a lot of news going on out there. How do you know when a piece, when, when something you see is right for a piece, like is right to be written about? Right, I think in, in that case, I don't think you can know. I, I think you just, you have a feeling about it. It's uh, like, it, like, like Meredith said, like you can open up CNN and look at every headline and be like, boy, do I hate Mitch McConnell, but that doesn't mean you're gonna be able to have a great satire piece about Mitch McConnell, because we already know what a piece of crap he is. So what, what are you going to say? It's more for me, the satire comes from if you had CNN open like uh, performative liberal politicians who are just as bad as the outward pieces of crap like Mitch McConnell. And that's where the satire can come from. It's like, oh, yeah, these people are playing for the same team. And uh, it, it's it's funny to think that they're not, but but they are. But that we can get into the uh, the crust punk government stuff at another another time. You know, just go listen to. Let's Oscar start now. And... Let's <laughs> do it now. Oh, no, no I, like riffing off that. Um, everyone, Josh gave us permission to riff. Um, is that I think it's true. But like someone like a Mitch McConnell is going to be hard to satirize because if you want to do something funny, you have to do something unexpected, and so pointing out something kind of new that we already know to be true, but feels new to read. And um, that's like when you get into like jokes about Trump being orange, that's not going to ever really be satire anymore because it's not doing anything or it's bad satire because it's not doing anything new or productive or unexpected. And I, it's, it's gonna, like, I, you can call Mitch McConnell like a evil turtle all the live long day, but it's, yeah, you got to come up with like a, a fresh take. Yeah, there's so much worse than just sight gags, like the, the laziness of calling Trump like a Cheeto face or whatever. It's like, yeah, no, he's far worse than just his spray tan. Like, come on. So that's interesting. Bill, how important is the subject matter of a satire piece? Can you write something satirical about pretty much anything? Uh, that's 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 tough. I, I mean, it comes down to whether it's it's good or not, and comedy being subjective in its own sense. Like, I think, I mean, uh, I will talk shit on another satire site. The Babylon Bee is a piece of crap satire site. Uh, they are a Christian right satire site that will claim that they're being funny, uh, but they're not. They're just saying the most basic stuff and then but we're, we're a joke site uh and there is no subtext to it they're not going one or two levels deeper it's just it's to me it's crap um so i think you can write about anything but it's not gonna be good and if anybody from the babylon b is listening come fight me i am in frogtown in los angeles anytime you want let's go uh so sorry that i'm picking fights on the podcast but um yeah to answer the question, yes, you can write it about anything, but there's gonna be good and bad satire. For me personally, I think there's plenty of topics that you cannot satirize because they're either like the super obvious things that just like, oh, we're, we're not gonna learn anything new from this. Or it's just like, why are, what are you learning from this? This is punching down. There's there's nothing, like if you write satire about like people that are, that are homeless, like, eh, that's not really, satire like they're 
they're not in power. They're the most vulnerable of the lot. So what are we doing here? Yeah. Um, so you touched on something I want to talk about, which is, Meredith, we'll start with you. Do you have to have an, from a reader's perspective, I guess I should say, do you have to have an understanding of the subject matter to appreciate good satire? Can you just read the satire piece, have no idea what they're satirizing and still enjoy it? That's a good question. I guess it depends on like how strict your definition of satire is. Like, like you could argue that like monologue jokes and late night really aren't satire. They're just like putting like two references together or like something like Babylon B. Like, well, I'd argue that stuff isn't satire. And yes, we are said it. We already have the invitation to fight. So you can go to LA or you can go to Queens, <laughs> depending on your coast, <laughs> the coastal elites in this. Uh, but um, I do, I think to, to stay, to stick with your question, I think, it, yeah, it's going to be more fruitful if you feel like the joke is touching on something that you already believe but um, didn't had never um, like been put to in that way, or it surprised you, or like completely painted a picture that like um, makes sense with your values and your ideals, but you had never had that image in your head before. Like um, I guess using examples is the best. I should have like pulled up a bunch, but like one of my favorite headlines ever was the onions. Oh my god, what was it? It was uh, Jeff Sessions, like an inconsolable Jeff Sessions tries to end it all by smoking a joint like that one is one I love because it's it plays into you already think it's ridiculous that Jeff Sessions sees like weed is lethal um which it is it kills no uh but and also but it paint but it, it it creates a scene that is detached from reality but based in something so true which is Jeff Sessions um messed up uh vision of the world and also it's punching up at him because as someone who is evil and in power so that one for me is like a perfect recipe of like being very detailed creating a new picture speaking to a truth that you already agree with like if i love jeff sessions and hated weed um and only one of those is true then i would not like that headline so i think it's like less an understanding of the subject um and more like is that already where your ideals are because i don't think satire is ever going to like persuade someone to believe something different um, but I think it can speak to you where you already are. I, I would definitely agree with that. With the hard times, we have very specific uh, references that we make to like the punk and hardcore scene. And I'm a straight edge guy. I've always been straight edge. And a lot of people have different ideas of what that is. They think, you know, straight edge people are jocks. We are, we want to fight people all the time. Uh, that's just how it is. Uh, but a lot of the jokes I make that are satire pieces are anti straight edge because I come from that. I see where it is, but it's just like making fun of straight edge people and the pretentiousness of it and being close to it allows me to do that. And somebody that is straight edge can enjoy it from the sense of, Oh, this is me. I get this. And people that are not straight edge go, I know this guy, <laughs> you know, and get that regard. So I think being close to a subject matter uh, when writing it certainly helps. And I think from the audience perspective, you can relate more to it on a stronger level if you see yourself somehow in a piece as well. I'll actually, I'll cut in real quick and say, I'm, I might be the perfect case study. Is like one, I adore the hard times. So Bill, honored to be speaking with you. I should have led with that. <laughs> Thank you. But um, as someone who truly like, I have no background, like knowledge of 
punk of like i see sometimes i think headlines that have to do a lot with video games and i think they all definitely tickle me and i like them because i understand like what they're saying without knowing the specific references and i'm sure i'm missing stuff like i'm sure so many of your headlines just whoosh but um i think it speaks to like someone who doesn't have like specific knowledge and isn't part of the in group that's being mocked or doing the mocking for hard times but i still can see when they're like hilarious and maybe that's like also punk specific in that like if it's like a group that takes itself very seriously and is very like easily recognizable, it's gonna be like funnier to a wider range, to a wider audience. Yeah, and punks definitely take themselves way too seriously, you know, just uh, uh, it's, and that's why I think the Hard Times was able to get kind of a traction in the beginning was people just recognized the ridiculousness, especially if you came from a certain scene and you see the, every, with, punk it's like we're all here together but there's certain hierarchies that that build themselves in you're like oh we are and it's it's a silly place it's just a silly place but yeah so you've both mentioned this a few times this concept of of punching up uh bill what what exactly does punching up mean so punching up would be uh, I, I suppose it'd be easier to explain like punching down uh, would be, you know, as you're making fun of some, a, a group or something that you perceive as to be lower than your status. So punching up would be going after the people that you perceive to be higher than you, people in power oftentimes. So we could go with law enforcement officers up to politicians or just bosses, managers, anything like that, that have this fake power that we give them. Uh, in, in that regard. So punching up would be showing, you know, making a joke that helps you recognize how these people are flawed. Uh, and it's it's things that everybody should understand, but maybe you didn't think of it in this certain way. So you get the humor in, in that regard and you can recognize things. And then we're punching down, obviously, like I said earlier, going after somebody that is that is homeless or you go after people that are you know, uh, different gender identity or something like that, that's more disenfranchised in that sense. And they are fighting for basic human rights. Like that's my problem with like the Babylon Bee is during the big protests, they were going after protesters and stuff like that. Like, how are you such a fucking bootlicker? But anyway, uh, so <laughs> that's, that's kind of how I, I see it. Gotcha. Uh, Meredith, to, to riff off of that, um, you know, how how tasteful do you have to be in satire? And do you ever find yourself wondering if you're not being tasteful enough? I mean, is that something that, that registers when you're writing? I think that's an interesting word. I think it's going to reflect what makes the writer laugh. So I think, like, Bill, a perfect example you brought up was, like, if the punchline is something to do with homeless people, if, like, I am, if my, if the butt of my joke is, like, the the homeless person then I think I lack taste as a writer and I think anyone who laughs at that lacks taste I think like honestly I'm glad ba Babylon B got brought up early because it is kind of easiest to see it in terms of like who's doing it wrong and honestly why there's never really there's never been a um, successful conservative version of the Daily Show is that if your values are always that like what is funny is like that's that that somebody is non-binary Where's the joke? Like it, 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 it's going. It's going to maybe appeal to people who agree with that, but 
it's not fruitful. I'm not really saying anything that productive about it. I would say um, you do you do have to be conscious that like you can have jokes um, that have to do with homelessness, but the joke better be on like the some better off and not on the person um, themselves. Is my yeah, ear, you're good. Or am I? Okay. I'm um, sorry. My something popped up on my computer about my earphones. Um, but yeah, I think like an, an example that comes across with like um, reductress is like a lot of, I think, aspiring writers are like, oh, I don't have a butt for my joke. Like, well, what's safe and what is like going to be good for everyone is, um, oh, white man, which like I'm all for that being the butt of the joke. It is objectively like the safest punchline but it's not original right now. And it has, it's that whole thing of like, you can understand satire and have like what you're saying be valid, but you still also need it to be funny. Like you can't just, satire isn't just saying something true. Like with Trump being orange, that is true. But where's the joke? Like what what is the funny thing about it? Um, so yeah, I guess, I don't know if I directly answered your questions, but um, for myself, I do try to make sure that I'm like, what is, you, if you can't, if you as the writer can't identify the joke, you you might be wasting someone else's time by submitting it. So I, I think you do have to like do a values check and be like, is this tasteful? Mm -hmm. uh, spinning off something Meredith said um, about white guys being like a safe and obvious choice in our weekly edi editorial meetings with the Hard Times, one of our, our managing editor, Chrissy Howard, she's always pushing for more jokes about shitty women you know like she's always pushing for like hey girls can be scumbags too why aren't we doing more jokes it's uh, it's always just straight white guy does something stupid and she's always pushing for the no i want to i want to see some some shitty women in here as well like not from a sense of i i hate women but just like hey it's not only guys that uh you know don't brush their teeth at night or whatever you know something like that but I love that because I, I think that's so true. And I think Reductress does that really well where it, you, women can be like the character, the POV in your headline, as long as the joke isn't like, ha ha, it's because they're a woman. And if you can't identify that, you might be like in that territory. But I agree, yeah, you know what? Women go nights without brushing their teeth and should be, I kind of like with the onion, like there's the iconic like area man who is like the character doing all of this mundane stuff that is getting reported on. Um, but they also, they do have like local woman and area woman, and it's not necessarily gendered or making fun of something that's like innately feminine. It's the, it's like, oh, there, there are things worth mocking that aren't um, misogynistic. So I want to switch gears a bit and talk about the timeliness of satire articles, because a lot of the stuff that you'll be writing about, it has a short shelf life. Um, Meredith, when you have a timely article that you're writing on, does your approach to the piece differ knowing that you can't go through as many revisions as you want or it loses its appeal the later from it you get? So what, what, how do you handle an article that has to be done quickly is what I'm saying. I think that's great. I hope a lot of people tuning in also are people who work well under like under pressure and that like procrastination fuels that fire. I think you should use a deadline like that and like the um, desire to be topical to sort of clear your head about taking the most straightforward approach to your joke. I think sometimes something I struggle with all the time is like, I don't know if it's like the phrase, like a hat on a hat, like trying to do a joke on top of your joke and you're kind of losing what you're saying, the message of what you're saying. I think if something's topical, like you get 
straight to the message, have the scene that you're reporting on like as clear as possible in your head and like stick to that. So I guess my answer to that is like, yeah, just being more focused and not experimenting as much, which honestly, I'm not even gonna say as a tip, it's just a reflection of what I do. Cause I think sometimes the, the funniest stuff comes when you take an unexpected turn, but if you don't have time to do that, yeah, keep keep it keep it tight is what I would say. And I'm truly looking at myself right now and talking to myself. <laughs> stay focused. Stay stay focused. Yeah, I think one tough thing about being a satire writer in the sense of writing on to topical things is you're not only competing with like late night hosts, you're competing with an entire world of Twitter where somebody that has seven followers says that you stole their joke. And you're like, I can assure you that your profile with an egg uh, and your three followers, uh, I'm not one of them. And since I don't use Twitter, I can even make it a, a guarantee that your joke was not something that I stole. Uh, so there is that tough thing where the competition is is ramped up. So when you are when you do have like a good satire take that doesn't require it requires more than just tweeting and hitting the enter button. You have to find like if you're an editor putting a publication, you have to find a photo to go with it, copy edit things and all that. That it is tougher to get things out there and keep it original. Uh, so a lot of times. I wouldn't say the quality goes down, but you have to allow yourself to just put this out there. And a lot of times it's like, this is just gonna live for this one hour anyway. It's like disposable content. So don't get so hung up on it. Like for on the writer's end of things, let things go a little bit, you know? Like like uh, comedians that go to open mics, you try something out, you know, you, you, don't, you don't do it again. I'm not saying do your satire pieces like an open mic because it will be crap, but uh, really, don't put too much pressure on yourself. Meredith, is it stressful writing knowing that what you're writing might have a short timeline? Like if it's about something that just happened, is it more stressful knowing that you don't have as much time to work on it? I don't know. I think there, I don't know if I'm honestly the best person to, to speak on that. I, it's not always where my experience is, is like turning out topical stuff. I do for my own benefit. I'm not saying it all always gets accepted. I think there's something though with like, it, it doesn't have as long as a shelf life necessarily. So it's a lower risk. And it's comes to a point where like, as someone who wants to tell jokes for a living, it, quantity over quality for a writing process. Obviously you want to put quality out there for the world to see, but um, having... I think something that separates like, you know, people who have one off go viral on Twitter one time versus people who try to write comedy for their career is the endurance aspect and the ability not to hit that one perfect joke for one story, but to like wake up every day and write a bunch of bad jokes and filter through and get to the good ones. Mm -hmm. Or again, am I projecting and just telling myself what I want to hear? <laughs> we'll never know. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're spot on uh, in that regard, like the Repetition, you, you're just going to get better through repetition, no matter what, no matter what you do. So uh, if depending on what your goals are, if it's satire writing, if it's, you know, you eventually want to end up at the onion, but you don't, you don't have any avenue to get there, write 10 headlines in the morning, just riffing off of what you see on CNN or whatever, just and throw it out because nobody's going to see it anyway, but you're just getting the, the reps in for, for yourself. Totally. And I also think there's the idea of like, if you, not everyone who is watching this is a unique individual with a beautiful mind, but if you thought of it, 
probably so did somebody else. And I think there's a desire to like, don't always just like write to the room or write what you want your favorite late night host to say, write the thing that makes you laugh and write the thing that's like true to your perspective. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you want to identify something universal, but also like, don't get hung up on originality always. Write what makes you laugh. So that segues perfectly into my next question, uh, which is, Bill, you brought this up, funny being so subjective and, and you know, it's different for every audience. So Bill, how do you, how do you judge what is and isn't funny, especially when it comes to submissions at the hard times? So yeah, I, I had mentioned I am a straight edge guy. So drug humor is something that like goes over my head a lot of the times. Like I don't, I can't relate to being hungover. Like I've never drank before in my life. I've never been drunk. So when somebody has a joke like that at the hard times, we have kind of a unique process, I think, as to how we handle submissions. Like we have a pitch group that's online and somebody can submit a headline and then the other people in the group, they can, it's like a Facebook group. So they can hit like if they think it's funny. And then as editors, we can look at this and like, well, this got a lot of likes in the group. So are we missing something here? Uh, because me and the other editor are straight edge and our, our managing editor, she's sober at this point. Uh, so we are the squarest people on the history of the planet as far as, you know, when it comes to drinking and all that. But uh, so we kind of rely on the people in our pitch group who we find funny to be like, all right, clearly they see something in this. It's a, it's a joke about smoking weed whatever. If we don't recognize it, then maybe we'll just give it a shot. And then kind of, if it doesn't work out, then we kind of just recalibrate our expectations. If we're like, all right, well, we, we gave that a shot. But as far as me personally, as far as what I find funny with submissions, uh, it's, it's kind of tough. It's a, a general voice, I guess. I mean, I grew up reading The Onion when it was still a hard copy. You know, I, I grew up in Massachusetts and if a friend went to New York, I tell them to grab me the onion from a newsstand. Then I moved to San Francisco where it was on newsstands for like two years before they took it away. So like that voice is just ingrained in my head. So when I see somebody pitching, it's like, oh, they kind of have the formatting down, right? I guess I'm looking for structure most of the time. Like, does this person understand the structure? How would satire headline flows? And at least from there, that's a good starting point. And then I can look at the, uh, the, content of that a little bit closer once I see like all right, at least they're starting from a good place as opposed to just throwing down words on a page that really have nothing to do with anything mm-hmm. and Meredith from the writer's side are you the judge of when you're being funny or not and how do you know if your writing is funny is, is it something that you just have this sense now I'll say it's really um kind of gratifying and like insightful to hear the editor's perspective of like you know, not some uh, tyrant editor who's like, not funny. But I think it's, um, <laughs> I, I, there is, it, I know it must be frustrating for like listeners to hear, but there is something to like the voice, the sense of humor of what, what tickles your fancy or what like is funny. I think some, there, there are times where I also been a joke and I'm like, this, this is golden. This is, uh, I'm, I'm about to be famous as like an uncredited writer and it gets completely ignored, submitted to many sites. And it's, it's like your private joke that you think is so funny and is not ready for the world. Um, other time, and, uh, but the reverse happens as well, where I'll, I'll say something is like a one-off because you need to get to 10 um, pitches for the week. And it's that 10th crappy one that gets published. I think 
I say that to say, I feel like I have a good internal voice about what is funny to me, but you have to accept the subjectivity and, um, you know, I'm trying, it comes back to the quantity over quality again. Like if you put more work out there, less of it will be so precious to you. You'll do less like self-censorship where you're like, uh, scrap it before you submit it. And you'll be able to get a greater sense of what is working and what isn't. And you have to be willing to take that in. Cause I think some, uh, there are a few times, there are a few hills that I'm willing to die on um, in the, like the, the writing world, I, I think. And maybe that's like a reflection of um, my youth and vigor, but like you have to be willing to understand what people who have been in the industry longer than you think is funny and think isn't and like kind of adapt to that and evolve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from from uh, the, the amount of submissions that we see at the hard times, so I, I will like, if, like Meredith said, that 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 tenth headline that you, you submit because you need to get to a number like is the one that hits. That is so often the case that it's like almost discouraging to people. Like I can't believe I threw out this this fart joke that blew up the world, and like everybody thinks this fucking fart joke is the funniest thing. Uh, when I had such insightful commentary on the, on the current state of capitalism in America, but uh, it's it's really what it comes down to don't get discouraged if you're submitting to different sites. Like you, you, unfortunately, if you submit your 10 headlines, it's, it might've just been missed by an editor just because it got filtered into a spam folder somehow. Like it's, don't just rely on your one packet that you're submitting to like a satire site is like, this is holy and this is the best stuff. It took me three years to write this, you know, like that's, it's just keep cranking them out because there's, it might be a simpler reason as to why it's not getting seen and it's not always nefarious and it might, it might've been genius stuff. It could have just been missed. So keep submitting to these places if it's something you really want to do. And by the 10th one, you're going to be getting better at it anyway, and it'll become easier for you. You, you, the, The idea generation will just get easier over time. So one quote that I always bring up, and I brought this up in our episode of, on humor writing as well, um, from David Sedaris, who said, I think one sign of amateur humor writing is when you see people trying too hard. And I think that's extra. It's just so true, especially in satire. So I want to ask you, Bill, we'll start with you. What are some giveaways that people are trying too hard in their writing? Uh, so this, I wouldn't say this is trying too hard uh, but specifically for people submitting to the hard times, since we are consider ourselves like a punk website, when somebody submits like a packet of five headlines and they say something like shitty punk website edited by fucking idiots is going to reject. I was like, wait, what, what is like, you're, I see like, like that you're just kind of joking around here, but like, what is this? You know, like you don't need to reference me. Like uh, just write your, like a good joke about Weezer or something like that. I don't know what you're doing here, but I, I think there's a little bit of try hardiness in that. And then there's certain tropes uh, and I have to keep it specific to the hard times. This is what I see a lot, but like, there's obvious things like there's a lot of members in ska bands. So people will pitch like the same, we've seen the same headline hundreds of times, like 17 dead in ska band bus accident. You know, it's like, yes, right. Cause there's 17 people in a ska band. We get it. Uh, or Keith Morris, who is a singer of black flag who has very long dreadlocks that 
locks of love was shut down after he donated his dreadlocks to them. So we've seen that joke so often. Uh, and so I guess I don't really know what is try hardy uh, about it, but uh, we, there's, there's certain red flags that we see in submission packets that we just, it, it just turns us off in a way. And I think it's kind of obvious things, or if you are submitting to certain websites, make sure they haven't run a headline exactly like it before because we often get that and we've even gotten emails from people you stole my joke i submitted this in august 2019 and be like hey that came out in september 2017 so please uh please do your research before accusing us of uh stealing your joke but it's fine uh, i i don't know if i answered your question fully there because it is a it's a tough one to know people's intention you know of of how hard they're actually trying in a way. But sometimes, unfortunately, just like I wouldn't make a good ballerina, some people aren't good writers. It's just unfortunate like that. But maybe, maybe you're just not a good satire, but you could be the best sketch writer. Like maybe just where you want to focus your comedy writing just needs to be twisted just a little bit, turn the dial, find that next thing. Maybe you're a great stand up comedian, because I've seen that a lot where stand up comedians don't translate to good satire writers. Uh, it's, it's two different tools in your tool belt. And I, if I could try to um, identify what that is for me, like the difference between someone who maybe add an open mic who's like funny in other areas. And honestly, what to me is the difference between parody and satire and other comedy writing is if I'm doing like a strict definition of satire, you have to have something to say you have to be trying to expose something that you see in the world that deserves to be mocked and mock being like a mean word, but deserve, I think expose the common word about it. And I think um, sometimes in reading other people's work, hilarious people in like, as people, but yeah, their jokes aren't really saying any, something. They're, they're, they're creating something that's like detached from reality and maybe it would be a hilarious sketch, but doesn't feel purposeful. And I'm definitely not like on like a, a high, I don't always put satire on that like pedestal. Of, like it has to be holding truth to power always. I love silly stuff, but even like everything on like something we haven't talked about yet, but like Clickhole, uh, I adore, I love Clickhole so much, but um, all of them are like innately saying something because the whole premise of Clickhole is like all content deserves to go viral. So like the existence of Clickhole is a joke, which means that they always, everything they, they publish is already serving the joke. So like they kind of, so they, they can get way, way, way more absurd, which I, it is right up my alley. Um, but I think that uh, something else I wanted to jump off of that Bill said was like, re read the sites you're submitting to and try to mimic their language or be fluent in their language of what their tone and structure is. And like, if you read The Onion growing up, you're going to be able to like speak The Onion um, and that kind of stuff. And if you try to submit to a site that doesn't make you laugh, but you just want to be a joke writer, but you don't have anything to say, I, I don't think the equation's adding up. And that to me is like, that's trying too hard because you want you want to say something, but you don't, might, you might not have something to say. And mm -hmm. kind of going off of that, uh, with the submissions we see to the hard times a lot, we can tell almost from the, the jump, like this is a rejected onion packet or this is rejected reductress headlines. Like we can tell exactly from the voice, like, oh, they, they don't read the hard times. They just know where a 
satire site and they they want the byline which is which is fine but just get the voice a little bit better that that's all you know you you can do it you've listened to music uh so and we're a music site you can figure that out so i'm going to talk about publishing now and we kind of segued into this during that during that last question anyway but meredith when you're writing a, a humor or satire piece do you already know where you're going to send it? Because it seems like, especially with the, the market for satire, you kind of have to write it specifically for a play. So is that the case with you? Or you just write the piece and then go from there? Oh yeah, that's a great question. And um, maybe it's getting more into like the nuts and bolts of things, but explaining my, so yeah, what I am is more of like a headline contributor where I every week submit 10 to the onion and 10 to reductress. Um, and my process is, yeah, like kind of what I said at the beginning with like, I'm always capturing throughout the week or trying to find things that I think are funny at all times. Um, and then, you know, always ahead of time and never an hour before they're due, <laughs> shake those into headline structures. Um, but I think like, yeah, your, your other um, session with like James Fulta about like writing full length pieces, I am less experienced there. I am more of the like, the weekly headline contributor, which gets into the like the joke teller, and I'm so and I am less equipped to talk about like writing a full length article and making all of that uh, funny and like efficient line by line. But I really, really could get into like more like the mechanics of the headline joke, which is another thing that I feel is worth saying. Make sure the headline is the whole joke. Like I think a lot of times we get into the like the like. 10 things that are blah, 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 blah. And then all the jokes are in the headline, which is awesome for like McSweeney's and points in case and those. But if you were trying to do um, a satirical news sites, the joke is the headline and vice versa. So Bill, I'm curious, especially with, you know, hard times being so specific, when headlines get rejected, what can writers, is there any other recourse for them with that headline or is it just kind of die and they move on to the next one? So we don't have any like if somebody submits something to us and it's popular in our pitch group but we ultimately decide it's not something we want to run we encourage people to take it wherever they want to go you know we have never tried to be like a site that says like no you pitch that to us there is no chance that anybody else is ever going to fucking read this uh so we we want we've always wanted our I mean, I, I want the hard times to be the starting place for somebody that eventually gets to be writing for late night or whatever. We want to encourage every writer we have like to figure this out here. This is your, you know, this is your elementary school of, of comedy writing and let's, let's get you to the next place. Uh, however they do that. Um, so I guess uh, going back to the, 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 the question at hand, uh, we don't really have any limits on what people do, but uh, like Meredith said, we, we are headlines first. Like nobody ever submits a full written piece to us. Uh, if somebody does submit a full written piece to us, it's never correct for our, it's never in the voice of our site. It's just somebody uh, unsolicited sent us a full piece that's like 7,000 words rambling and weird, more of a manifesto than anything else. And we have to so politely say, yeah and we have to like politely say like no thank you this is nice but like please don't come to my house uh and stuff like that uh but uh it is it is tougher to 
from writing a full satire piece and, and sending that out, we don't do that. It's headlines. If this is approved, you write the headline and make sure that the body of your joke is the headline. Like Meredith said, don't write the headline and then just go on a tan weird tangent about something else in the body of the text. It's the headline, write three beats on that and riff and go and that's it. Totally. And also, jump again, go jump. we're riffing, we're riffing. Um, so some people I see like in the Q&A are talking about like the structure and there are rules and like and a lot of resources online like people have written about like tips for structuring your joke of in terms of like mimicking the news language and like setup and then like end on the funniest part like slam dunk on what the joke is because if you leave because the whole reason satire works is like if it can sound like a real news article I mean not don't take that to its full extent but like for the most part um and then you, so you want it to read like nation demands, blah, 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 like sounds like a, a New York Times headline. And then the ending is Chuck E. Cheese or whatever makes you laugh. Ch Chuck E. Cheese is well-worn territory though. I think, I think there's room to keep making jokes, but that one was a very basic example. So Meredith, to follow up on that, you mentioned how you operate in terms of weekly building your headlines. How do you know when those headlines are ready to send? How do you know that they're in their the best state they can be in. I think that gets back to like all writing. If I'm writing a script or I'm writing a prose or something, like it's it, you're never going to be done. As if you like the people who tune into this are like writers, it never feels done, and that's why having deadlines I'm so grateful for. Um, if you can go through and you're like, okay, there's don't have a wasted word, like any like little articles that you don't need, or if I like again like if the last the last word should be the funniest bit so if I put like a weird a stray adverb at the end because that's how I would write maybe like prose or something or a tweet cut that cut the trim all the fat all that kind of stuff I mean I think it's ready to go when it um the deadline comes <laughs> which is not a totally helpful answer but to say right before your deadline and also yeah just try to get it into its most efficient form like the long ones are not as funny to read as they will be in your head. Try to always say it out loud and see if it sounds like it fits a newscaster voice, all that kind of stuff. And one other thing I thought I'd clear up just cause like looking at some of the questions, I will say like sites like the onion and the reductress and I believe hard times works this way as well is like you random people don't just like send in headlines. You sort of apply for a role or a position first to be a on the roster of contributors and then you submit on a weekly basis or or less than that, or more. But um, you first you first send in a packet and apply to have that recurring role. It's not just like a oh, I have an onion idea. Let's see if they're taking submissions today. <laughs> yeah, that it is kind of how it works at the hard times. Like we have a submission. You send us a packet of five headlines, and if we like something from that, we put you in a pitch group where we don't have limits on what you can or can't pitch. So some people pitch a lot in our pitch group and other people, they're just kind of squatting on it right now. And that's fine. It's uh, whatever, wherever you want to be creatively. Um, but we've also thought of like, is the reductress model better for us? Should we go to that? Like, it's, it's always like a thing of uh, how do we, we want to do it. Um, but yeah, as far as submitting in that regard, hard times, submit a packet and then you're in forever until you say something shitty and then we kick you out because sometimes that happens as well because uh, people that think, uh, 
oh, you're, you're punk. You can say anything you want. Like, no, actually you can't. Uh, so uh, don't be a dick and uh, see you later. So, Bill, I'm curious, do you ever see headlines that you think could be funny, but you just want to tweak it a little bit? And will you work with writers on that? Or is it kind of like has to be perfect? Oh, yeah. We, we in the editorial meetings, we'll see like a premise in the headline, but maybe they just didn't, like Meredith was saying, you want to end on the joke, you know? So you never want to be like, joke, comma, a bunch of crap at the end of it, you know? Like it's just a, a bunch of crap, then the joke uh, is is the way to go. Leave You want to mislead people into, that's where comedy comes from, is the misdirect. And you go, oh, look at that. It's a, it's a carnival trick. It's easy. But uh, so we do that a lot. Oh, and that was one thing I wanted to just mention that Meredith kind of touched on it is like when you are a writer in submitting to a place like a reductress or even the hard times, if you get into the group and you have written a piece and then the editor changes your words, don't get upset. You can accept it. You, you have wanted to write for this place that has structured a voice that you've enjoyed. And now you're going to get mad when they, put you into that voice more, it doesn't make sense. We have had people, I've had arguments with contributors who say like, I want that changed back. And I have to just politely say, I don't care. You know, it's not gonna happen. Like you, I've been running this site for six years. You've clearly enjoyed it for some reason. Uh, Trust this process. I know, even if, and maybe they can ask their 10 friends and their 10 friends will say, you were right, you know, like, but it's just, you're getting into this confirmation bias. I don't know where I'm going with this, but trust your editors when you're a writer, uh, because it, it's going to help you out in the end when you go on to the next thing. Comedy is collaboration. You know, you're not always going to be working by yourself. You have to learn to work with people. You learn to work with people. You're a good person. You get moved on to the next thing because you're a good person. It doesn't matter if you're the most talented person in the world. If you're a dick to work with, nobody cares. So I want to get into some audience questions now. Uh, Anybody from the Babylon Bee trying to fight me? Do I need to give my address out? Not that I see quite yet. Yeah, I'll get docked. First question. I just lost it. Uh, yeah, I want to hear from both of you on this one. Uh, Bill, let's start with you. Are there any noteworthy resources on writing satire and parody that have helped you develop your skill or your eye for it? Um, or do you think it's purely a natural talent? I, I don't think it's a natural talent. I think it's something that you absorb through like osmosis in a way, like the more you read it, the better the better you understand it. Like, like I mentioned, like, I mean, I have all the onion anthology books from the early two thousands, like on my desk in the other room, I would read these front to back all the time. And that voice is so specific and it's the best way to do this style of satire. You know, like if you're going to, they have the AP style satire dialed in, right. There are a couple of books on like Scott Dickers, the early onion writer has a book like how to write funny uh, I, I read that and it's just like, this is all stuff that you kind of already know if you've read this a bunch and it's just kind of confirming. But I, I think overall, you just have to consume the product, you know, and then you'll be able to not mimic it, but at least understand it better when you're writing it. 
Meredith, what about you? Any, any resources that you would recommend or just, again, reading the material? It's totally reading the material and becoming fluent in that language, exactly that. I remembered, I noticed mid-conversation what I have like propping up my computer is an onion book of knowledge. So the fact that that was propping up this whole conversation, we'll see if there's a metaphor in there. Um, I, I'm the, yep, the Scott Dickers, How to Write Funny. I think because it's what it is, is what is like, no one is born knowing how to write satire. You, you are born with a sense of humor and like keen observation and maybe having a way of saying things like nobody else. So tune into that, find your voice in all other forms of comedy. Like I love, um, I think it's Mike Sachs, Poking a Dead Frog and no, Here's the Kicker, book. those two books. Those, yeah, those are fabulous and that's all kinds of comedy. But I think if you are good at satire, you probably love a lot of different, you love stand-up and um, sketch and improv and everything and late night and all that. Um, I think what it is is, yeah, find your voice, find what you think is funny. You can get concept and premises and like Scott Dicker says, like concept is king. And then you can translate that into a neat and tidy satirical headline if by learning the, the, the tools of the trade. So what is, yeah, I think there's a natural talent for like finding out what's funny. And then you can, you can like learning a language, you can learn how to translate that into a efficient joke. There, there's a little bit of, I'm a type of person that I work best, like within parameters. Like if you just give me no limits, like I'm kind of lost, you know, or it's just like, uh, so I like a structure. So actually saying like, read the stuff and get it that way. I'm realizing that that's almost like a bad way of doing it. Like, so if you are the type of person like that needs to read a book to just get your head around that Scott Dicker's book is a decent place to start, you know, like uh, the, the how to write funny, because at least it will give you sort of an outline of where to start. And then you, as you put the other pieces together of reading things and consuming them, it will make more sense because you have that structure kind of laid out in your head. But uh, for me, reading that book definitely just kind of helped like align things that I already knew and just kind of confirmed them. Uh, so I, I think if you're that type of person, similar to how I work and that type of book, but yeah, and like Meredith said, those, that Poking a Dead Frog, another great book, but it's not satire writing, but it just gives you an insight to other comedy writers and how they struggle or how they, their creative process. And you realize, oh, I'm not alone in realizing that uh, everything is kind of weird and you can't just generate this, wake up and write a thousand funny things. You might have to take a walk and get one funny thing. So a good question here. Uh, Bill, we'll start with you on this one. All the discussion about creating headlines. So what's the process like when you submit a headline and it gets accepted? What happens next? For the hard times, so you would submit a packet of headlines uh, and we read it over, the editors. We would take a headline that we like, we would pitch it in our pitch group on this person's behalf. And if it does well in our pitch group with our other writers who are established, uh, who they don't know who this person is, they just see, we will note that this is an email sub, uh, you know, in you sort of thing that came from an email. So nobody knows anybody, it's totally blind. They don't know race, gender, age, whatever of this person. It's just the headline, that's all it's being judged. And then if that gets accepted, I'll reach out and say, we want to go with this headline and I'll just kind of walk the person through the process of writing a hard times article after that, the 
the structure. We'll talk the beats over together of where it should go, how it should heighten in the draft, who we're hearing from in the draft, how you're supposed to be a fake reporter, you know, sort of thing. You're not writing it in the sense of like, I want to write this from the perspective of a phone book that was sitting on a table watching this all go. It's like, you know, you're not writing it from that perspective. You're writing it as a reporter writing a piece uh, and you are gone out in the field. Uh, so for the hard times, it's pitch, get accepted. And then me or one of the other editors will walk you through the process. We have a couple of writing tools that we've made for ourselves that kind of lay out how to write a hard times article with hopeful notes and all of that. And then hopefully walk you through that process. And when you finish your first draft and it comes to me and I have to edit it for the first time, it's not in total disrepair. It's not a complete teardown. It's at least like 75% there. I just got to do a little punch up and then we can send it off and get it ready for publishing. Meredith, is your experience pretty similar with, with what happens after your, after your headline gets accepted? See, I can maybe touch more on the perspective as the person who sends it off into the unknown. Um, yeah, I don't have the experience in the editor's room really as much, but like the Onion and Reductress have are pretty transparent about what goes down, which I, I'm extremely grateful for learning about all of that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do that. I could just contribute the joke, which is the headline. Um, and with the Onion, we get um, the selects the shortlist back, which might be like hundreds of headlines long, meaning someone um, on staff highlighted it and said that it made them laugh. And then from that they select, and like, you know, a, a much, much smaller percentage of people to write the jokes and take it to the next level and create the body. Um, and Reductress works similarly, um, but on a, a different scale. I, yeah, but I don't think I have anything productive to add other than what Bill said. Gotcha. <laughs> so, Next question, Meredith, I'll start with you. We kind of covered this a little bit, but I want to touch on it again. Is there a such thing as going too far or is any material too soon to satirize? I think, I mean, there are a lot of different like kind of schools of thought on that. I am not one to have the language of, to like frame it negatively and say like, you can't do this or uh, there are rules against it. But what I will say is that if you think that you can edit, but it still doesn't make anybody laugh, you need to examine why. And um, I guess there, yeah, there's, if you're, I mean, then again, I think of things with like The Onion published like the day after 9-11 or something, maybe when, he, yeah. And those are, it's kind of like an iconic moment. And um, it's like America chooses to, bake American flag cake because why not? Or like, cause they can't find anything else to do. It was something like that about like, but what that did was that well, the joke was not at the expense of 9-11 or the victims. The joke was at uh, touching on the, the sense of like uncertainty and helplessness that everyone was feeling at that moment. So you can joke about a subject, but think about what's making you laugh and what's making it funny. So I'm not gonna say like, oh, you can't have a joke that has to do with trans people, but if you're, joke is at the expense of someone's trans experience or like that's the butt of it and that's what makes you laugh don't be mad when no one wants to publish it because the way everyone's values are move moving that's not that's not actually funny to majority of people so i'm not going to tell you what you can't do i'm just going to tell you that you're not funny <laughs> we we've gotten the the too soon criticism a lot at the hard times one that i think was the most confusing to me was 
when uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral was on fire, we ran a headline that was pretty benign that was just Hunchback of Notre Dame becomes the hunchback of nearby Motel 6. And and people were in the comment section like, I can't believe this. Like, wait, the Catholic Church is all of a sudden uh, this, uh, you know, crazy. Like, you can't, uh, like, it was confusing to me. I I mean, it's a beautiful piece of architecture. I didn't want to see it burn by any stretch of the imagination. But at the same time, this Nobody was killed uh, in that accident, as far as I, I know. And uh, it's, it's the Catholic Church. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's also, weird, you chose a fictional subject. Right. Like, hate, That's to break, hate to break the illusion, but you didn't yeah. like, make fun of like the Catholic Church. Yeah, Quasimodo was fine. He wasn't, uh, he's, he hasn't been changed by this at all. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think a lot of people just want to be the person that says this was too soon online or whatever, just for their own sense of uh, their, I don't know what it does. I don't know what it does. It makes them feel a little bit better. They, we've done plenty of articles about like a musician that's died, but usually it's almost a tribute to that person. We never want to say, ha idiot, you've died. Like you, if we don't like the person, then it's just like, we don't write about them, you know? But if it's like, Lemmy died or when David Bowie died, we kind of did like a little bit of a tribute article to them that was funny in the headline, but people were still saying this is too soon while other people were saying this is exactly what I needed. So it's like, well, we're going to listen to the people that want the therapy from the laugh at this rather than the person that just thinks this is too soon, who probably is the same person who's going to like tell a dead baby joke at a funeral or something like that. So I want to sneak one more question in here. Uh, Meredith, we'll start with you. Has the current political and just world situation made it more difficult to generate highlines or has it made it easier? Headlines, I mean. I don't know if I could put it in a scale of difficulty. I think someone um, touched on this in one of the Q&A things uh, um, that like Trump is hard to satirize because he's too absurd that whatever you level you as like the satirist, you're going to take it. He's already there. Um, and so in fact, whatever, when you like try to joke about him being orange, that's like the fallback answer. But like, that is so much more benign than the actual stuff he does that it's the, it's like an anti-joke even. Um, I think things that make it contribute to making it harder is people's attention span. Like for a, like in 2016, I wasn't really contributing in 2016, but I think there are times where you, like, you want to joke about something um, that has nothing to do with politics, but during the election, that wasn't there wasn't really the appetite for it as much. Like that's not what's going to get published. I think it, I think it pushes you to be better because I don't think there's like a, a finite limit on what you can joke about and the kind of jokes that created so that if everyone on Twitter, it all being so saturated with everyone making too many jokes, pushes you to say something super weird and original and make an observation that no one else is making, then satire is being pushed to be better, right? But what about you? Do you think it's it's harder to write funny things and hard times, for lack of a better word, or 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 do we need difficulty oh, in order shit. to have I think something? My to... Computer. Sorry, I'm, I might be freezing up. Did I freeze up? Am I still there? You're still here now. Yes. Okay. Uh, sorry, I, I I missed the question. Yeah, I was just saying. Do you think harder times, for lack of a better word, makes it easier to write satire, or 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 yeah, that's the question. Uh, I don't. I, I think it gives. If you were a satire site 
and you ignored the the protests that went on earlier in the year surrounding George Floyd and all that, like, it's weird that you didn't comment on it. Like the hard times we did had a, a lot of anti-cop articles and people were commenting like, when did you guys become so anti-cop? I mean, like, I don't know when I was 12, uh, I became anti-cop. When I first started skateboarding, I became anti-cop. I've never been pro-cop. And if you look at the history of hard times, we have always had anti-cop articles, but now we're just putting out more, you know, in, I don't think it made it easier or harder in any sense, but it kind of focused you in on certain topics that are in the zeitgeist, at least, that people are talking about. And you can, instead of just being outside, just wandering around and not knowing what to write about, at least you could be like, all right, I want to talk about police violence and what I see going on right there. So I don't know if it made it harder or not, but it certainly gives you a a focus in in that sense. And and right now things being calm relatively, you know, it's uh, things are like back to normal or whatever you want to call that. It it is, I'd say it's more hard to generate headlines in a downtime uh, because you go back to like the bread and butter stuff, uh, like relationship stuff or, you know, how your parents treat you and that sort of thing, because, uh, you know, it's stuff people can always relate to but you don't have that, that big ticket thing uh, going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, everybody who, who made it this far, thank you for sticking with us. Uh, we're going to be back next week for our last episode of the season. It's going to be inside cartoons and comics. So we hope to see you then. Uh, again, this is Inside Writing presented by Gotham Writers Workshop. Uh, for everyone that was here, you will get an email after the show with important links to the episode uh, and stuff that was talked about in the show. Uh, Bill, Meredith, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. See ya.